This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our This Day in History segment. We do it every day. And always, it's brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. There's no better place to learn about the Constitution, about American history, literature, the arts, philosophy, all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with her terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, in 1931, Chuck Colson was born. You may not know his name, but you're going to love his story. He rose to great power as a lawyer in this country to the White House, the Nixon White House, as special counsel. His fall from power was sudden, and it was hard. He ended up in federal prison. He was one of the Watergate Seven. But the good part of this story, the beautiful part of this story, is what happened after. He ended up receiving the Presidential Citizens Medal in 2008, the second highest honor in the land for civilians. You'll hear how. You'll hear the entire remarkable redemption story of Chuck Colson. Chuck was born in Boston in 1931 to a family with old-school American values. Some would say classic American values. Let's take a listen to Chuck. And I'd been raised this way. I'd been a Marine officer. I'd learned about duty and honor. and I learned about integrity as a Marine. And as a kid growing up in the Depression in tough economic times, my dad was going to school at night, studying to be a lawyer, and, I, and he was working days. But on the weekends, he'd spend some time with me. He said, Chuck, one thing, always tell the truth and never lie. When you work, work as hard as you possibly can, no matter what it is. Even use the example of cleaning toilets. He said, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Do it well. Uh, earn your pay. Do a hard day's work for an honest day's pay. Pay your bills. I mean, I was steeped in what we then knew as the Puritan work ethic. And uh, being honest, uh, this was a big thing with me. So young Chuck was learning what almost every American was learning back in that day. It was a sort of a common culture. And there were people from all over different parts of Europe and all over the world. But these were pretty much the things that we all took as true. Chuck Olson started out as a young hotshot. His friend, Eric Metaxas, even described him as a wonder kind. Here's Chuck on this early time. My early years, um, I was the first person in my family who would go to college. I thought if I could get to college and I won a scholarship to Brown University... And uh, when I got through there, it was time for me to go into the military because the Korean War was raging. And so I became a lieutenant in the Marines and uh, rose very rapidly. I won honors in school. I think everything I ever did in my life, I was successful at. I went to law school nights while I was working as an assistant to a United States senator. At one point, Newsweek uh, wrote about me as the youngest, youngest, youngest administrative assistant to a United States senator. I think I was 28 and uh, ran campaigns, loved it, started a law firm, great success, got to know Richard Nixon. In 1968, when he was elected president, he asked me to come. I was, at that point, left a law practice, which was making a lot of money, and uh, went into his administration as his special counsel. I had kind of an open portfolio. I was the guy that advised him on lots of the political things. It was a very exciting thing, because I arrived in his office when I was... uh, 38 years old, and my office was immediately next door to his. And so I was with him and in and out of his office every day. 
that's a pretty heady business. And heady it was. And so how did everything turn? For someone who described himself as a patriot and one who grew up with the Protestant work ethic that he described in that first clip. And by the way, you're hearing from Chuck Colson himself, and we do this all the time. We don't like to opine about people. We want you to hear about these important people's lives, the, 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 the critical events in their lives from themselves, from them. So how is it that he became one of the most hated men in America? Men in America? He penned the infamous memo known as Nixon's Enemies List. And he leaked information from Daniel Ellsberg's FBI file after Ellsberg stole classified documents documents about the Vietnam War that were known as the Pentagon Papers. Just bad stuff. And a lawyer note, no less, with an oath almost as important as the Hippocratic Oath, lawyers themselves, we don't do this stuff. Here's Chuck Colson describing what was wrong with Chuck Colson. When President Nixon asked me to leave my law firm and Washington and come in and be his special counsel. Uh, the first thing I did was to be certain there'd be no conflicts of interest. I uh, took everything I'd earned as a lawyer. I put it in a blind trust. I told my law partners not to come visit me, and they didn't. Uh, I was certain that I would never be compromised. I was, I was determined not to be. I would get gifts at Christmas time, for example, and I would take them down to the White House switchboard operators, the guys that drove my cars, because I was never going to be compromised. And I was so determined, I ended up going to prison. Why? Uh, I think you can be so self-righteous that you don't see what's really going on. You become oblivious to your own insensitivities because you're sure nobody can compromise you. Human beings have the infinite capacity of self-rationalization, and that's exactly what I did. I was in a lot of meetings where there were high stakes, where the President of the United States would say, national security depends on this. Kissinger came in fulminating one day over some documents that had been stolen. And he said, this is going to compromise all of national security. I can think back on times, I remember when the president, uh, four or five of us in the office, and the president was exploding over something that had gotten out and was in the hands of the Brookings Institution, and he turned to uh, Bob Holden, and he said, Bob, have we got a team in place that can go in and get those documents back? Remember, I've asked you for that. Then I later realized that was a time when I should have stopped and said, wait a minute, Mr. President. Think about the consequences of this. But I did not. Self-righteousness is believing you're so good that you couldn't be compromised. And that's the kind of pride that's fatal and was in my life because I was so sure of myself that I didn't realize how vulnerable I was, as every human being is. What a confession. And anybody who's listening to that and doesn't hear a part of themselves at some point in their life is just full of it. And that's why people love Chuck Colson. He didn't whitewash his own complicity. In fact, he put himself right in the center of it. And pride, my my friends, we all know pride is the great killer. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The story of Chuck Colson. You're not going to believe it. Hold on. There's so much more good stuff to come.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the team here just assembled one heck of a story you're about to, to hear. We just heard from Coulson, his rise to power from obscurity, from just an ordinary American background right to the White House, and then the fall. And Coulson had left the White House in 1972 after leading Nixon's successful re-election and entered private practice. But the Watergate scandal where Nixon operatives had broken into the Democrat headquarters was just starting to percolate. The FBI and others were seeking indictments. And Coulson was a main target. In the midst of all this, he went to see an old friend, Tom Phillips, the CEO at the time of Raytheon. An old friend who seemed like a totally new person. I walked in his office one day and still feeling kind of empty. And I looked at him and he was a completely different guy. He was a guy like myself who'd worked his way up the hard way, self-made man, became uh, head CEO of this corporation when he was barely 40 years old. Uh, Dynamic guy. And he was at peace. And he started asking me about my family. And finally, I said to him, Tom, you've changed since I saw you four years ago. He said, yes, I have, Chuck. And then he looked up at the clock and he didn't look me straight straight in the eye, but he said, I have accepted Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. Now, i got to tell you, good people, I took a firm grip on the bottom of my chair. I'd never heard anyone talk like that. I grew up in that vast Unitarian wasteland of New England. I never heard the gospel. I never heard anybody talk about Christ as a, as a person. I'd gone to Sunday school and learned all the lessons you learn in Sunday school, but it didn't mean anything to me. He looked away, as I later found out, because he'd never done this with anyone before. Kind of interesting. I thought about that for the next three months, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And so I went back to him one evening in August of 1973, and I said, Tom, you've got to explain this to me. And he said, before I do, I want to read you a chapter from a book, a chapter I'd recommend for all of you, particularly because you're type A high achievers. You wouldn't be at Columbia or otherwise. And I, uh, uh, he read to me the chapter from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity entitled The Great Vice, The Great Sin pride. Proud man is always looking through life, looking down on other people and things, and therefore can't see something above himself, immeasurably superior God. I listened to this chapter, and C.S. Lewis, if you know him, the Oxford Dean, who was a great Christian apologist, as well as a great professor of medieval literature, I listened to that, and I realized he's writing about me. I thought I'd done all these good things because I wanted to serve my country, and I wanted to be a success at my profession, and it was really all about me. And I sat there that night in pain listening to that chapter read. And then Tom told me how he'd gone forward at a crusade here in New York with Billy Graham preaching and given his life to Christ. And I was really moved. He wanted to pray with me, and I said, no, I'd I'd never prayed except in a church, so he prayed. But that night he, he told me of his own experience when he gave his life to Christ. And here I was, the tough guy, and I don't think I'd ever cried or I'd let anyone know if I did. I left his home that night. I looked back and I got into the automobile and I tried to drive away, but I could not because the tough guy was crying too hard. I couldn't see the road in front of me. Hmm. I pulled over and sat there. I have no idea for how long, at least an hour, maybe longer, thinking about my life, thinking about could there be a God and is, if there were, could I know him? And I just called out to him. I didn't know any of the words. I'd never seen any brochures about evangelicalism. I never knew there was such a thing. I knew nothing about organized Christianity. 
except I'd once in a while been dragged to church as a kid. But that night, for the first time in my life, I was sure there was a God. And I was sure he was hearing me. I woke up the next morning figuring I was going to be embarrassed, and instead I couldn't wait to get my hands on mere Christianity and read it from cover to cover. And I can only tell you that book did it for me too. 42 years without God and same chapter. And that's why I almost wasn't going to be able to speak after that. I had not heard that clip before. And if you are struggling with pride, pick up mere Christianity. It'll whack you over the side of the head. So he had taken that first step in his Christian walk, but it was a lonely first step. As author Eric Metaxas, who wrote the great book Bonhoeffer, tells us. He became a Christian. The press couldn't believe that this hard-nosed, you know, um, they called him the White House hatchet man, do anything to get the president elected, sort of dirty politics, that this guy became a Christian. Nobody would believe it. He became a Christian. And because I knew him personally, I can tell you this man was the real deal. Well, a lot of people were wondering whether this was just a fake conversion and people were doubting Colson's story. Former Attorney General John Mitchell even snapped, quote, I'll take my chances with the Lions over believing Colson. But others in Capitol Hill prayer group had softer hearts. Let's take a listen. And he talked about his conversion, which we pressed him on. But then he said, what worries me is that if it is not for real, what will that do to Jesus Christ? And then one of the persons who was there, Senator Harold Hughes, probably the most liberal Democratic senator, how liberal he was is that many times in conference, whenever a Republican would speak, he'd walk out. And he said, Chuck, if you've accepted Jesus Christ into your life, and I believe you have, stood up and walked towards Chuck, and with his arms reached out, said, I am your brother for life. And Chuck rose, and they embraced each other. Well, for someone that viewed themselves as a patriot, the impact of the events of the Watergate scandal were becoming particularly close and trying for Chuck Colson. And to suddenly be told Charles Colson, the United States government against Charles Colson, was a shattering moment. Uh, I look back on it now, however, and I am grateful because that was part of God convicting me of my own past and my own sins and uh, giving me a new life in Christ. And that's a remarkable clip. He was grateful. He was grateful that he was going to have to pay his dues, and he was grateful that he was humbled. And without that conviction, who knows what would have happened to Chuck Colson? And look at all the things that would not have happened. Well, this is something for all of us to remember in our own trying times, to remember that there's a purpose in them. It's happening for a reason. Hard to understand when it's happening. It's happened to all of us. It's happening to many of you right now. You're wondering, why is this happening to me? Yet his lawyers encouraged him to stray from this new person he had become. Boy, those lawyers will always get you in a jam with yourself. Here's Eric Metaxas again. 
his lawyer, he had a pretty good lawyer, says, guess what, Chuck? I got you a plea bargain. You're not going to have to go to jail. All you have to do is say you did something you didn't do, but don't worry about it. You just, you know, play the game and you won't go to jail. Well, Chuck, uh, because he'd become a Christian and because he actually took it seriously, said, um, yeah, I can't do that. I'm not going to lie. Uh, if I have to go to jail, I'll go to jail. His, his lawyer, uh, and I, I tell this in, in the book, went crazy. He said, you don't understand. No one does this. You take the plea. Shut up and take the plea bargain. Chuck refused. Chuck refused. Again, the new man has to do things differently and not what the lawyers say. Not what the lawyers say. Coulson knew he didn't have any culpability with the Watergate scandal, but he also knew in his soul he wasn't guilt-free. And his faith wouldn't let him walk away from that fact. I got back to Washington and I realized I was guilty of some of these things. And then I started being hauled before the prosecutors and I testified 44 times under oath. And one day I realized I got to put an end to this. And so I took the one thing, actually I took something I hadn't been charged with and walked into the prosecutors one day and I said, no deals, no bargains. This is something I did. I'll plead guilty. I want to get it behind me. And when we come back, well, you're going to hear even more of this riveting story because Chuck Colson was going to face prison time and far away from home in Alabama of all places. And so again, imagine this. The apple of everyone's eyes, successful all the way to the top, gives up a lucrative law practice, ends up at the seat of power, the White House itself. And when bad stuff started happening, the guy who's supposed to be the White House lawyer doesn't speak up. You bet he was guilty. Any lawyer will tell you he was guilty. What Chuck Colson does with the rest of his life, you're not going to believe it. It's so beautiful. More about this life, this remarkable life, after these messages. And this is Our American Stories. And we honor all kinds of folks here on this show, all kinds of people. This day in history has featured Levi Strauss's life, John Wooden's life, Johnny Cash's. We just did Merle Haggard because we had to. Born and died on the same day. Andy Grove. Old, new, business, sports, doesn't matter. So many amazing people. And people of faith, too. Reverend Martin Luther King, we did not call him doctor the whole hour. We refused to. We played some of his great speeches and showed how the media sort of secularizes this incredible man of faith. And so we spent some time on faith, too, and some of the remarkable things that people of faith have done and what faith has done for them. And my goodness, what 
a religious conversion did to this man, well, you're not going to believe it because now we're going to dig into the story. So you just heard that this guy just couldn't walk away. And he could have. He could have just accepted the plea bargain and avoided jail time. And which one of us wouldn't do that? Can you imagine coming back to your wife and saying, look, honey, I know I could get out of this, but I really got to do some time because you see my walk with God requires it. What he had actually done, by the way, was obstructing the Daniel Ellsberg investigation by leaking information from his FBI file. He would now spend seven months in prison, a time and a place that gave Chuck a perspective on life that he couldn't find over the 40 years he was a free man. And yet the most amazing thing in that prison, I'd see these men and I'd, my heart ached for them because they were lying on their bunks, staring into the nothingness, nothing to do. And their bodies atrophying and their souls corroding. Just that slow death. That's the horrible thing about doing time, as we inmates say. But I grew to love those guys. I was reading a little Bible study and had a passage in Hebrews which said God became low in the angels for a period of time that he would not be ashamed to call us his brothers. I looked around at all these guys, drug dealers and murderers and bank robbers and all kinds of people, and I thought to myself, I'm no better than they are. I really got to love them. We got a little Bible study at night. There were seven of us. There were three convicted dope thieves, a car swindler, a, swindler, a car thief, a moon, moonshiner, and former special counsel of the President of the United States, we'd be on our knees praying. And I really had a great relationship. I discovered in prison, away from all that power, the trappings of power, away from all the distractions in our culture, when you come face to face with yourself and God, that you find that which eludes you through life when you're seeking all the things of the world. What a powerful testimony. And, you know, when we were doing Johnny Cash's life, we found the same thing out that Cash didn't see himself as being better than those guys he was singing to in the prison. And I think Bono had the greatest words you could ever say to a man when he was there to eulogize Johnny Cash. He said, Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned, he sings with the damned. So, Coulson served his time, and then he decided to serve his calling, a calling that he found while serving his time. Then the question comes, why do I go into prisons? A lot of people ask me that. I've been asked that for the last 33 years since I started going in. They say, why are you going into prisons? And somebody wanted me to work with, I'd, I'd known most of the politicians and knew a lot of the world leaders in politics. And so people said to me, why don't you work in the ministry among, among leaders of governments? I said, because God's calling to the prisons. Why? Because they're neglected. And why do I care about that? Because I firmly believe, as the answer to the first question you ask about where we come from, that we were created by God in his image. The imago dei, the image of God, is in every single human being, regardless of color, state of his stage of his life, degree of dependency, regardless of his country of origin. The image of God is in every single person. And so I go into those prisons to this day loving those men because they're God's image bearers. Indeed. Coulson formed the Prison Fellowship Ministry and started an in-depth look at how both conservatives and liberals look at incarceration and then, of course, what the Bible says about it all. 
And the conservative says each person getting his due is when he steps out of line, which is what the caseworker said to me when I arrived in prison. He said, Colson, you're here for one reason, punishment. Not bad. He was right. So the conservative view is retribution. And the liberal view is distribution, so that each person gets his due. Interesting thing about the biblical worldview of justice. Biblical view of justice, if you read the Old Testament, contains book after book after book of social justice. It also respects private property. It also talks about punishing people when they do wrong. Interestingly enough, not with prisons in the Old Testament or the New Testament. That's a rel relatively modern invention. But with a form of punishment as retribution. So the interesting thing is that the biblical worldview embraces both, which we argue about. All the great arguments in America about justice are between the distributive or the retributive models. The Bible embraces both in balance. The only one that is filled with grace and seeks restoration is the Christian view of justice. Indeed. Indeed. And let's see how Coulson actually put this biblical approach towards incarceration into practice. I saw the toughest inmate who was in the Washington State prison system. He'd been known in California as the most incorrigible inmate in the state of California. I met him when I was in the Walla Walla prison in the state of Washington when it was about to erupt in a riot because the inmates were rioting over the fact they'd been locked in their cells for nine months because 10 guards had been murdered over a 12-month period. It was the most brutal place I've been in my life. And I came into a room just much like this, only in a prison, and about the same number of people, a few hundred scattered around the room. No guards came in. One guard came in, but he took his jacket off, so he wasn't on duty. And I talked to these guys about what had happened to me in prison. I talked to them about what Christ could mean to them. And the big guy sitting down front, the toughest of the tough, looked at me, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, I think you're for real. He slapped me on the back. I was, I was glad he thought I was for real. And he said, would you come in here and help us? And so we did. We started going in that prison. He was converted. His name was Don Dennis. He was converted. When he was released from prison, he came with us, and he spent 10 years before he died working with kids on the streets of Dallas, Texas. That's purpose. That's something worth getting up for in the morning. That gives us a reason for living, because something, somehow, some way, each day, I might be able to advance the kingdom and serve Christ's calling. And that's it. I wanted to read a bit from Eric Metaxas on Coulson's conversion and all the conversions he worked on the rest of his life. Quote, In the following week, as he and his wife Patty enjoyed their time on the Maine coast, Chuck went to work. He had brought along C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and a raft of yellow legal pads. In his sometimes comically thorough and deliberate way, Chuck made notes and followed the arguments like the brilliant lawyer that he was. He wasn't about to accept something without thinking it through. At first, the idea that he had to accept not just God but Jesus was confusing. How could he logically accept a 2,000-year-old historical figure from Palestine as the God of the universe? It seemed absurd. Then he read the famous passage in Lewis's book where Lewis lays out the three alternatives in no uncertain terms, saying that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. 
The alternative not open to us is to think of Jesus merely as a powerful moral teacher. It was clear and it was discomforting. Chuck knew that in his encounter with the mind of C.S. Lewis, he had met his match. The man's logic was irrefutable. It was my choice as simple, stark, and frightening as that Chuck later recalled no fine shadings, no gradations, no compromises. No one had ever thrust this truth at me in such a direct and unsettling way. This is Lee Habib, the words of Chuck Colson, mere Christianity, and then him bringing this same logic and faith to men in trouble in prisons across this great country. More after this. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Chuck Colson, and what a life it was, and not often enough in our general secular media do we hear great stories like this about people of faith, and that's why we do it. And let's hear about the impact of Chuck's work directly from a former prisoner. So they don't give you a Bible in school, Chuck made sure you had one in jail. And I am very grateful for that, because that's where God revealed himself to me, too, through the printed page of sacred scripture in a roach-infested jail 26 years ago. And not only that, but he sent volunteers into these many prisons. He, He didn't just hit one, he hit all of them, across the board, around the globe. And um, he discipled and mentored and helped inmates grow. He, he said in one of his newsletters a long time ago, he said, I want to help inmates learn to use their time and not let time use them. He not only taught that, he believed it. He used his time. I want to let teach the inmates how to use their time and not let time use them. My goodness. That's something we could all apply to our own lives. So powerful. Here's another prisoner who was forever changed by those Bibles Chuck was handing out, despite him originally using that Bible for, let's just say, a less noble purpose. His name is Rick Vasquez, Hispanic. And in that cell, he had a Bible, but he used the Bible to tear the pages out and roll them for cigarettes. And one day before he started rolling the pages, he read some parts of it. And as he read it, he cried out to God. He said, God, save me. I want to know you. I want to be, I want to be free. I want to be yours. 
And that man was converted and that man was discipled by our people who work in that prison. That man had two more years in prison. He led half the gang members to Christ. Changed the prison he was in. Then we got him in one of our prisons where he worked for another year. And now he's out of prison, pastor of a Hispanic church in Houston, bringing in 10 or 12 ex-offenders out of the prisons every month into his church. That's hard to argue with. When you see that over and over and over again, that's empirical evidence that something does happen to those persons to convert them from one lifestyle to another and to live a different way. And it is the only answer we've found in crime. It is the only answer so far. By the way, it just drives, I think, many government leftist types crazy. And not all, but I think the bureaucrats particularly. Because this is a really private solution and a spiritual solution to something government just can't fix. Now let's look at the big picture. What kind of scale we're actually talking about here. Street today that runs 10 prisons in America as Christian prisons as models, getting a phenomenal recidivism rate, phenomenal success. We have 50,000 volunteers around America, and the ministry has spread to 113 countries of the world. And every Christmas we deliver gifts to children whose parents are imprisoned. 500,000 kids a year. We've been doing this since 1982. Incredible things happening, none of which I planned. You got to believe me. I'm a pretty good strategist. I knew how to plan things. I didn't plan this. I thought, okay, God, if you want to take me and use me in the prisons, you take me and use me in the prisons. And he did far more with my life out of my brokenness and out of my weakness than I'd ever been able to do with my life out of my own power and influence and ability. He didn't plan it. And he said, I'm a heck of a strategist, but I could have never planned this. And that is so true. It's so true in so many of our lives. Chuck had inspired others to serve their calling, joining in his ministry. Again, 50,000 volunteers. That's just crazy. Let's hear from one person who's calling Christ, working through Chuck, had inspired a billionaire we spoke with earlier this week named B. Wayne Hughes Jr., the guy who was trying to give back to our country by wading into the world of politics until one day everything was changed because he met Chuck. I've met Chuck Colson along the way. And I like to say that, you know, Chuck vaccinated me when I wasn't looking uh, because uh, he probably outside of my dad is the, is the one person that's made the biggest impact in, in my life. Um, and, uh, and Chuck uh, basically told me uh, something that I'll never forget. He said, look, he said, politics is nothing but a reflection of culture. If you don't like the politics, look at the culture. If you want to make a difference, you're not going to make it in politics. You're going to make it fighting into the culture wars. And at that point, I was looking for uh, uh, significance in my life. I'd, I'd, I'd made uh, the money. I'd, I was looking to go ahead and help my country. I mean, anybody can see that we're in a world of hurt, and uh, things have only gotten worse since then. Um, but I, uh, I saw what Chuck was doing, and, and I realized that what I was looking for was not going to be found in the mirror. I was going to be uh, focusing my gaze on the other. And we talked to B. Wayne Hughes, Jr., and you can go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org. Now, B. Wayne Hughes, Jr. had never been in prison, but he was, well, he was addicted to something else, and it was work. And 
his pride had put his work before his family. He lost his wife and he lost things that were precious to him. And that's what led him to the Lord and then ultimately to Chuck Colson. So go figure. So here's this billionaire dedicating his resources and time to doing the same thing and the same kind of work Chuck Colson does. In fact, we talked to one of those prisoners the other night, David Ray, who's a part of that program inspired by Chuck Colson. And David had killed a person when he was 17 or 18 years old. And we talked to, talked to him, frankly, last night about all kinds of things. And I got to tell you, it was breathtaking. And the crew here listening was, I mean, we were just blown away. It's the kind of radio you're not going to hear almost anywhere in this country. And we're proud to bring you stories like this. Wayne has since brought a theology program called the Urban Ministry Institute into 22 California prisons, a program whose graduates boast a 2.85 recidivism rate compared to 54% for California prisoners overall. To close out our hour-long celebration of Chuck Colson's life, we'll hear from one of the folks who knew him the best, eulogizing him. My name is Emily Colson. And I am very blessed to be Chuck Colson's daughter. Today we celebrate a life well lived. I am thankful to be old enough to have known my father before he became a Christian and to see the change, the transformation in my father when Christ ruled in his heart. My father still had the same intellect and drive and passion for life, but a softness came over him. I think about my dad's office in his home in Florida, the desk, highly polished, where he worked tirelessly. And I think about the overstuffed green chair in the corner, where every morning he would kneel and pray. I think of the three by five cards my, my dad carried in his pocket underneath his jacket. There were 15 or 20 of them there, an ever-growing to-do list. But in that list, he also had names, people that he prayed for every day. My dad became, as scripture says, a new creation. And he loved his family differently. Colson ended up receiving 15 honorary doctorates. And in 1993, he was awarded the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, the world's largest annual award, a million dollars. And it was in the field of religion, given to a person who has, quote, made an exceptional contribution to affirming life's spiritual dimension. Of course, in true keeping with Chuck Colson's mission, he donated this prize to further the work of prison fellowship, as he did all of his speaking fees and his royalties. What a life lived. The life of Chuck Colson. Here in our American stories, a life beautifully lived.
stories and our next story well it's about a 17 year old kid named bob heft who designed the 50 star american flag we all fly proudly to this very day here's greg hengler with the story after learning about betsy ross you probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent u.s flags were designed it might seem like a no-brainer flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make and do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heft's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic. Heft told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? So I got up and I approached the desk and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now that a B minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, the friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. 
I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa. My mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later, I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well, mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call and it said, now, the President of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president and he comes on the phone and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to him. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly address it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to his buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank. My teacher, he said, I guess if it's good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me. I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after, Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor, and a seven-term mayor of Napoleon, Ohio. He spoke extensively, as many as 200 engagements a year, and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heft died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68. But his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heft's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show. The good, the happy, and sometimes the really tough and tragic. But always, we try to write about and talk about heroism and rising above life's most difficult circumstance. And our own Alex Cortez today brings us a story with one of our favorite storytellers, the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, Larry Reed. In this great mortuary of the half-living, where nearby someone was wheezing his final breath, someone else was dying, another was struggling out of bed, only to fall over onto the floor, another was throwing off his blankets, or talking in a fever to his dear mother and shouting or cursing someone out, while still others were refusing to eat or demanding water in a fever and trying to jump out of the window, arguing with the doctor or asking for something, I lay thinking that I still had the strength to understand everything that was going on and take it calmly in my stride. That was on a relatively good day at the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp in 1942, in the words of the only known person to have ever volunteered to be a prisoner there. His name was Witold Pilecki. Witold Pilecki's family, going back as far as his great-grandparents, were thorns in the side of the Tsarist regime in Russia, which had occupied Poland, along with Austria, Hungary, and Prussia since the 1790s. Because of their opposition to the tyranny of the Tsarist regime, the family was exiled 700 miles to the northeast of St. Petersburg in Russia. So for several generations, this Polish family was not on Polish soil. Uh, they were exiled by the Tsar to a place that they were completely unfamiliar with. Pilecki himself was born in Russia in a small village called Olenets, but he always felt that Poland was his home and would someday be his home. In 1918, when World War I came to a close, Poland was uh, recarved as a country. It reappeared on the map for the first time in 123 years. But immediately, the Russians, under the new regime of Vladimir Lenin and his Bolsheviks, invaded Poland. They did not want to give it up. So to secure Polish independence, that at least for the moment was on paper, Pilecki, while he was still a teenager, and so many other brave Poles had to pick up arms against the Bolsheviks. And in a three-year war, they were successful at expelling them, and Lenin had to bring the troops back home. So it wasn't until 1921 that you could say Poland had indeed secured its independence as a nation for the first time since the 1790s. So Pilecki settled down and raised a family and painted. There was no indication that uh, Poland's independence was going to be threatened again. Only in the late 1930s, as Hitler began to rattle his saber, did it seem as though there could be yet another war. But still, on the eve of it, lots of people didn't see it coming. We had the Munich Agreement that was agreed to in September of 38 that basically said, hey, everything's fine and we have a deal with Hitler and as long as he doesn't go any further, uh, there'll be peace in the world. So. There was that long period of almost 20 years when Poland was free of conflict, but it came on them with great ferocity when the Nazis invaded from the west and the Soviets a couple of weeks later invaded from the east in September of 1939. 
There was tremendous resistance from the Poles, not only the Polish army, but an underground resistance that arose pretty quickly. So the Nazis and the Soviets never had a quiet day. The Poles were, have always been courageous people who don't take tyranny lying down. They've resisted it in every way imaginable. And Polecki was one of them. Along with another gentleman, he co-founded a resistance movement and fought very bravely. In 1940, after a year of fighting, Teletsky and his men realized that something was going on at this sprawling complex near Krakow, Poland, that would become known as the Auschwitz concentration camp. Uh, it wasn't yet the notorious death camp it would soon become, but Teletsky and his men realized that many people were being taken there, not just Jewish people, and they wanted to know what's happening there. They felt that uh, whatever it was, the world needed to know about it. So Pilecki volunteered to get arrested by the Germans in the hope that they wouldn't shoot him, that they would in fact send him to Auschwitz. And of course there was no guarantee that they wouldn't simply kill him on the spot and no guarantee that they would send him to Auschwitz. There were periodic roundups by the Germans of Polish citizens. And in one particular roundup of some 2,000, uh, he simply walked into it and was one of uh, those 2,000 people arrested by the Germans. He did not supply his proper identity papers. He had them forged ahead of time, and that was largely to protect his family. He did not want his name or his activity to be traced back and make them the objects of any reprisals by the Nazis. Did Vitold's wife know about and approve of him doing all of this. She fully supported what he was doing, knowing full well what an enormous risk it was, probably expected to never see him again. But he got his wish, and after an interrogation and being roughed up, he was sentenced to Auschwitz. He was Auschwitz inmate number 4859. Poletsky knew when he was sentenced there that it was a place of no good but it would be the next two to three years when Auschwitz really blossomed into this ghastly concentration camp that the world now knows. Upwards of two million people, ultimately, would be killed at Auschwitz. I'm sure that Pilecki had to think long and hard about how to get information out. I mean, he was stealing documents along with others that he recruited into his movement whenever they could. A movement that he built up to more than 1,000 insurrectionists inside Auschwitz. And then they had to find some way to get them out. There were 141 people who did manage to escape, and some of those were people that Pilecki had recruited, and he was sending material with them. But Pilecki, the Auschwitz volunteer, didn't try to escape. He had more work to do. There was a time in 1942 when Pilecki and some of his closest confidants in the resistance movement were able to rebuild the remnants of a radio transmitter with various spare parts and things that they could find around the camp to the point where they were actually able to broadcast. And for about a six-month period, they were broadcasting from this crude radio transmitter from inside Auschwitz, when you imagine hundreds and hundreds of guards on watch, fully armed at any moment. They were empowered to shoot you if they suspected anything. And yet this man and his men were able to get information out. 
And those reports, along with the documents he smuggled out and the testimony from people who escaped, became known as VTOLD's report, the most comprehensive eyewitness account ever compiled of the happenings inside the Auschwitz concentration camp. I'm sure that the Polish resistance had to find it incredibly inspiring to think that one of their own was on the inside and was getting this information out, that it was reaching the capitals of the Allied nations. This had to be an incredibly inspirational thing to them. Just imagine if the opposite was the case, if they'd never heard anything from him, if no information was getting out. That would have been tremendously demoralizing. It, it would have said, hey, there's no hope. But the fact that he was active and busy and hadn't given up and was getting this information had to be of great inspiration. Vitold, with his report, had done his part. It was over 100 pages long and reported that where he was was like another planet. There were sterilization experiments going on. There were three crematoria with gas chambers that were able to burn 8,000 people daily. At one point, he writes about some recently murdered Jews, quote, from the new transports over a thousand a day were gassed. British officials received this report and found it so shocking that they didn't believe it, saying to themselves, why would the Germans who shot and starved Jews on a daily basis put in all this effort? They thought it was an exaggeration from a desperate Polish government who was seeking more help from the Allies. It wasn't, but they filed the report away with the note that there was no indication as to its reliability. The Nazis, though, took his report seriously. They just didn't know it was him. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Witold Polecki. And by the way, we tell these stories for an important reason. A recent survey found that two-thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is. That's unimaginable, folks. And that's why we do these stories and why we partner with the USC Shoah Foundation to broadcast their incredible archive of 55,000 video testimonies from survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators of the Holocaust. And of course, it was a government that did all of this, the German government. And when we come back, more of Witold Polecki's story here on Our American Stories. American stories and we return to Alex's story along with Larry Reed of the only person to ever volunteer to go to Auschwitz, Witold Polecki. At this point, Polecki and his fellow renegades were able to smuggle their exhaustive report detailing the crimes of Auschwitz to Western allies. The Nazis increasingly sensed that something was going on. Documents were disappearing and occasionally a person escaped and then I'm sure they got wind of the fact that the Western Allies were beginning to pick up on information from Auschwitz. But in any event, Polecki never gave up. And even as the Nazis began to finger some of his close associates and execute them, he continued working until he felt that he had to get out, that they were getting close to him. And it was at that point on Easter Sunday, 
1943 that Pilecki accomplished what only 143 other people in the history of Auschwitz ever could. He escaped and brought with him more incriminating documents that he and two fellow inmates who had escaped at the same time had stolen from the Germans. He made his way 200 miles to the north to Warsaw in time to take a leading role in the Warsaw Uprising in 1944. A 63-day fight by 49,000 Poles attempting to kick the Nazis out of their country. The single largest military effort undertaken by a European resistance movement in World War II. This guy Polecki doesn't stop and history, known to him as the present, wouldn't have him stop yet either. Not yet. The Warsaw Uprising was one of the examples of Polish bravery that is just about unparalleled in history. It was unfortunately crushed by the Nazis, in part because the Soviets sat outside of Warsaw with the capability to enter the city and put it to an end. Very deliberately, Stalin did not, in spite of his assurances to the Western Allies, he did not send troops in to assist the Polish resistance during the Warsaw Uprising and just let the, uh, the massacre take place because they knew that the Germans were doing their dirty work for them by eliminating much of what could become the post-war resistance to Soviet domination. The one thing you have to give credit to Stalin for is that he was thinking past the war. I think uh, Roosevelt in particular, maybe not so much Churchill, but they were focused on winning the war. Stalin was thinking about winning the future, the future for Soviet communism. So his moves were calculated not only to assist in the defeat of the Nazis, but in positioning the Soviet Union as a dominant power in as much of Eastern Europe as would be possible after the war ended. Back to Pilecki, after the end of what was immediately in front of him, the Warsaw Uprising. He was arrested, but the Nazis never put two and two to, together and realized, hey, this guy was in Auschwitz and had created a resistance movement there. If they had discovered that, they probably would have shot him on the spot. So he spent the last weeks of World War II in a German prisoner of war camp without the Germans realizing who they had. In May 1945, his camp was liberated and the war would soon end. Polecki was able to see his wife and children for the first time in five years. And then history came a-knockin' for him again. During the summer of 1945, Pilecki, of course, was still with the Polish army, and he had a brief period where he saw his wife and two children again, but then the Polish army said, we need you in Italy. So he was stationed in Italy for much of that summer, but by September, it was becoming apparent to anyone looking very carefully at the situation that the Soviets were not going to leave Poland easily or quickly, uh, that they uh, perhaps intended to stay, and of course we know they did. Here's an American in Newt Gingrich's documentary, Nine Days That Changed the World. My father served in World War II with a free Polish officer, and a Polish officer said to him one time, I'm glad that your President Roosevelt talks about four freedoms, it's very inspiring, but Poland's really never needed more than two, freedom from Russia and freedom from Germany. So the Polish army said, we need somebody on the inside again to go back to Poland and now to spy on the Soviets to get as much information about their intent 
and their actions as can be gathered. And who better to do that but Vitold Polevsky. So here this guy, after all that he experienced for the previous five years, is now sent by his own army back into his native country undercover for the purpose of spying on the occupying Soviet army and getting word out about what they were up to. His cover was blown. The Soviets discovered what he was doing, arrested him for espionage in 1947 and held him captive for a year. He endured torture during that time, was put on a public show trial, accused of espionage, convicted, and then in May of 1948, at the age of 47, he was executed by the communist regime. In the last time that he saw his wife, immediately prior to his execution, Poletsky made a final request to her. Could she read to their children one of his favorite books, Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ? Poletsky was a devout Catholic to the very end. On the day of execution in May of 1945, May 25 in fact, his last words were recorded as, long live free Poland. And that certainly was the motto by which he lived his life from the day he joined the Polish army at the age of 17. The, the man was absolutely fearless and totally committed. He endured unspeakable cruelties and hardships and all because he wanted his country to be free, free from foreign invasion, free from uh, tyrannical governments. And even though he had a family to think about, uh, his first love, I think, was freedom for not only his family, but all of his native country of Poland. And I have just enormous respect for that. After World War II, with Poland being a communist country now, governed by a puppet Soviet regime, really, the story of Pilecki was suppressed, and the reason was the Polish communist government knew that you couldn't tell the story, the full story, of Witold Pilecki without revealing what he had done after the time that he resisted the Nazis. I mean, they would have loved to have had the story told of what he had done to resist the uh, Germans. But of course, everybody would then ask, well, what did he do afterwards? And then you'd have to tell the story of the fact that he was against the tyranny of the Soviet Union, too. It was against the communist regime. So instead of having any of that story being told, they decreed that his very name could not be spoken in public. His own family were advised by the government that they could be penalized, would be penalized, jailed, if they spoke of Vito Pilecki in public. It wasn't until after 1989 and the liberation of Poland from the communist yoke that finally it was no longer illegal to speak of Witold Pilecki. On March 9th, 2016, Larry Reed got the opportunity of a lifetime visiting with Pilecki's son, Andres. It was apparent during our conversation that even though you know, he suffered the loss of his father. Uh, all these years later, he seemed to be a, a man content and, and happy. And when I asked him, why are you happy or something to that effect, his response was, because my father's story is now becoming known. And great job on that, Alex, as always. And thanks to Larry Reed. And his book, by the way, Real Heroes, is terrific. 40 stories about 40 different heroes, and it's available at Amazon.com. 
And we tell this story for a reason, because first, 10 million Polish Americans know it more than likely or should, and there are 70 million Catholics in this country. And we also tell it because, well, we know the power of God and how totalitarians hate and drive out God anytime they can. And we can tell that story of the individual and their heroism and the source of that heroism. We'll do it every day here on Our American Stories. Witold Pilecki's story, in a way, a great world history story, here on Our American Stories. stories and we often bring you the story of a song we've covered dozens of them on this show and you can hear them all at ouramericannetwork.org another brick in the wall there goes my life jesus take the wheel georgia on my mind and light my fire by the doors and now we bring you another doors song story and it's told by ray manzarek best known as the keyboardist and founding member of the doors with Jim Morrison. Sitting at his Rhodes keyboard, Manzarek demonstrates here the creation of Riders on the Storm like the masterful musician that he was. So one day we're jamming in the studio, I mean in our rehearsal studio, in the Doors workshop before uh, we got, uh, before we started recording. And uh, for some reason or another, Robbie was playing his twang guitar. And we were doing a old cowpoke went riding out on dark and windy day. And uh, Jim said, I got lyrics for that. I got lyrics for that. And he had uh, Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. And I said, wait, wait, okay, that's great, man. Riders on the Storm. We can't, but we can't do to, we can't do Vaughn Monroe. Or the old cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day. So I said, let me see what I can do with this. And here's what I came up with. We got to put some jazz to it, make it dark. And sure enough, this is what happened. But before we get to that, Oh, 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 Jerry Chef, when he, when he comes in, we've got the whole thing together. And Jerry Chef says, what's the bass line? I said, like, simple. E minor, A major. He said, oh, man, that's impossible. I said, what, for you? That's not impossible. Let's, look at this. It's like nothing to it. And he said, uh-uh. That's, that's on the piano, right? That's on the keyboard. Sure, that works great on the keyboard. There's nothing to it. Watch this on the bass guitar. And I don't know what the hell he did. He had to go through machinations 
like turning his wrist up virtually upside down, inside out, trying to play it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, man, but it sounds so good. And it's so easy on the keyboard that you got to play this. And he went, okay, okay, I'll play it. And here's the rain part. Thunder. After we finished the song, he said, Oh man, I've got super rain and thunder. It's riders on the storm. It's raining on the desert, right? Yeah, exactly, Bruce. Raining on the desert. He said, we got to put in some, uh, uh, some rain and thunder. So sure enough, I mean, the whole thing starts with... And then that bass line... Another one. Ender Morrison. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. Like a dog without a bone. Out on loan, riders on the storm. So it's basically a blues song. It's a one four five, except we change the five. And this insane part that Morrison sings: "There's a killer on the road, brain is squirming like a toad." Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride Sweet family will die Killer on the road Yeah, Robbie And we're listening to the one, the only Ray Manzarek, founding member of The Doors as he walks us through the creation of this masterpiece Riders on the Storm, which was released in June of 1971. Ray goes on to give some vivid insights to the haunting lyrics crafted by Morrison. And again, this is why we love telling these stories. You're hearing it from Manzarek himself, taking us into the song, taking us into the DNA, into the coding of this song. And by the way, you don't hear music like this in a mixture of jazz and blues and country western and all mashed together in this creative and almost brilliant way. And what a story Morrison's telling. He's really putting you in a place. And so let's continue with Ray Manzarek. And then Jim sings, Girl, you've got to love your man. Girl, you've got to love your man. Take him by the hand. Understand his world on you depends, our life. 
life will never end. Gotta love your man. He had the idea to make a movie about a hitchhiking killer. And that's, if you give this man a ride, sweet family will die, killer on the road. But he couldn't, he couldn't leave it at that. He couldn't, the song was just too haunted and too beautiful. And almost, almost as if he had a premonition. And certainly, he knew he, at this point, singing this vocal, he knew that he was going to Paris. You know, he knew he was going to Paris. He hadn't told anybody before we did this vocal, but he knew he was going to Paris. And he was singing his love to Pam and trying to wipe out in his mind and on the planet that killer on the road. So he says, girl, you gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. His world on you depends. Our life will never end. What a great line that is. I mean, isn't that the ultimate love? His world on you depends. Our life will never end. Gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Keyboard solo. Thunder. Then Densmore kicks it in again. And we're back on the highway. Riders on the stone. Jim's back in. Riders on the stone. Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone An actor out on loan Riders on the storm Robbie plays some great guitar That haunted voice. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. 
What a performance. You just want it to not stop, actually. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. The story of a song, that's Ray Manzarek, Riders on the Storm. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do, and particularly our stories of a song. It's one of our favorite regular fe- regular features. Another Brick in the Wall, There Goes My Life, George on My Mind, Light My Fire, and many, many others. And again, thanks to Ray Manzarek for that instruction. It's like, it's like going to school, but the kind of school you wish you'd had in your life, but never did. And so we leave where we started. This is Our American Stories.